Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. I'm your host, Marty Bennett. It's Wednesday, August 30th, 2023, and today we're coming to you live from the home office, and we're covering today uh, three questions we've been hearing from international educators over the past seven days. Uh, we've just returned from a 10-day trip to India last night, and boy, I tell you what, I'm a little bit beat. Had a good night's sleep, but uh, picked up a little bit something on the a little bit of something on the plane, as you do when you do international travel. It's inevitable. Uh, picked up a little cold, so a little head cold today. But hopefully, we'll get through this without uh, too many issues. Thanks all for being a part of the conversation today. Uh, really happy to be joining you today to talk about these three questions, as we do each week. Uh, for those of you that are a bit new to the roundup, we take our questions that we ask here on the Roundup each week from our newsletter, uh, the, all the SMIE news fit to share. And that newsletter comes out on Monday mornings at about 9 a.m. Eastern. Uh, if you subscribe to the email version of that, uh, you can do so at our website, smieconsulting.org slash subscribe. You can go down to the newsletter piece, enter your, your email details, and we'll get you added to that subscription list. Alternately, if you prefer to get your international ed news via LinkedIn, uh, we have a version of that it goes out a little bit earlier at about 8.30 uh, every Monday morning. And that has over uh, 1,200 subscribers on our way to 1,300 subscribers on that newsletter version, and then another 100 or so on the email version. So thanks so much for uh, making our SMIE newsletter part of your weekly international edification. As we do, uh, it takes um, takes a, 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 a good amount of work to collate the news stories each week and put that together for you, but it is a labor of love for me. had a chance to chat with some folks um, in India last week about the newsletter and about the roundup, and they were thanking me for, for the, that, and I said, hey, it's my, my service to my field. I've uh, been in the business now 30 years in international education. It's something I really enjoy, uh, sharing my insights, uh, kind of the hot takes on Monday in the newsletter, and then the lives here on Wednesday afternoons. I know most people don't watch the lives, and that's fine. Uh, we're all busy, very busy people and all around the world, so you can't always be up at 1 p.m. Eastern time to catch these lives. But we thank you for um, subscribing, listening to the podcast, uh, and just making it a regular part of your, uh, your weekly uh, journey through our shared field of international education. So let's get to our first question. First question of the day is, what happens when students cut corners? And I'll tell you what, this is one of those things that uh, we, we talk about all the time in, in reference to, to students from certain countries that ha get, get themselves into issues uh, during uh, their, uh, either their, their admissions process, the visa process, and there's a lot of different hurdles they have to clear uh, with their financial documents, their academic documents, to actually go uh, to convince a university to admit them to get an I-20, then convince a U.S. consular officer to get them, give them a visa, and allow them to enter the country. But that's not the last step in getting that visa. They actually have to make it through Customs and Border Patrol. And for many of us in the field, we kind of have a love-hate relationship, mostly hate, with our uh, Customs and Border Patrol people. Uh, on the SCVP side as well, we have our uh, whole Department of Homeland Security. We all have our challenges 
working with them uh, because of the backlogs and short staffing situation they encounter, that delay uh, recertification requests and RFEs that pour in that don't seem to make a whole lot of sense uh, for that. And then uh, we have different branches of Homeland Security dealing with our inbound students with the Customs and Border Patrol. And this is where we really there's a lot of unknowns. We don't know the individual circumstances of every student that uh, gets turned away at the border or gets denied entry or gets sent back home. But we had this case a couple weeks ago. The, the news started breaking and then certainly last week while it was in India, uh, this was the focus of a lot of uh, uh, coffee break conversations about what's happening with, um, with, these, with these 21 students. How did they uh, get to that point where they entered the U.S. and then were, were turned away before they could enter. So this is what the story is about. So the Pi News did a piece on this. There are a, a lot of uh, local Indian sites that had stories about this last week. And uh, what I found very interesting um, before leaving, and I was right just as I was leaving for this trip, we started seeing a number of our agents uh, in the field in India start picking up on this story and then posting particularly on LinkedIn and sharing, uh, sharing reminders. Uh, this is the cautionary tales for their current advisees not to cut corners. And that's what the, the question is really about, what happens when students cut corners. It's, this is what th happened with these Indian students that decided it was more important for them to um, make plans to, uh, once they got into the country, uh, for, um, for illegal work, for other, other various things that was found out, upon, found out upon investigation when these students were taken to secondary. They were asked in there, apparently, uh, from the reports I'm hearing from agents on the ground, uh, that's Indian agents who might have uh, known the, the agencies that these students went through uh, to go to the U.S., that uh, they, they went into secondary, secondary review after they could not uh, adequately explain where their funding was coming from. Uh, then per the regulations that now allow uh, Customs and Border Patrol officials to uh, review uh, social media uh, messaging apps, take devices and, uh, and review the data that's on there to uh, see if there's anything that suggests that their, their purpose is not what they say it is. And enough evidence was found uh, that uh, on their devices to show that they were um, not really serious students in the end. That in the end, the bank statements, um, though we don't have the exact evidence for every 21 of these students that were uh, reviewed, uh, returned uh, home. Uh, we don't know all the details, but uh, several folks have conjectured that uh, they had information in WhatsApp messages that indicated that they wanted to work, uh, that uh, work illegally, and people were setting them up with jobs. Uh, so there was that going on. Uh, so there wasn't funding as many students do. Um, it's it's a kind of a rite of passage for students going to the, going from India to the U.S., but also other countries as well, that um, money is put into a central account uh, to uh, allow a bank statement to be produced for a period of time. Uh, to meet the requirements of, uh, of individual institutions in terms of how long the money has to be in there. Sometimes that's not even a requirement, just has to show the bank statement with the money on account. 
and then that's what is needed to issue the I-20, and then when the I-20 is issued, the money kind of disappears back to its the original sources of uh, who donated the money so the bank statement could be given. So uh, that's that happens, and that's likely what happened in this case as well, uh, that it puts students in a situation when if they never really had the money that they said they were going to have, they arrive in the country and their plan to solve their financial issues uh, that they knew they didn't, weren't have, didn't have the money to pay for all their expenses, particularly their tuition, they would work off campus illegally. And that's uh, something in, in the U.S. It is fairly, um, it's unique to the U.S. out of the major destinations, uh, Canada, U.K., Australia, New Zealand, all allow students to work off campus. Doesn't even have to be directly related to their field, but they can work off campus. Other countries we saw during the pandemic, Canada, Australia, allowed students to work more than uh, the minimum number of hours, maximum number of hours per week, which had been 20. Uh, so that, and that's a universal seems to be in terms of uh, maximum number of hours, but the ability to work off campus is restricted in the U.S. until uh, students uh, are able to do that usually through curricular practical training, usually after a year of uh, uh, academic year of study. They have the ability to apply for practical training and then if it's approved, work off campus in their field of study, but very in very uh, limited terms. Uh, in other destination markets, that's not the case. So those students that come here, they don't have a lot of choice uh, coming to the United States if they're going to campuses that don't have a lot of funding, uh, don't have uh, assistantships for typically for first year students. Uh, then uh, the choices are fairly limited in terms of how they're going to actually pay for their education. And students tend to find those outlets and opportunities to earn maximum money, more than they would earn on campus, uh, and potentially more than the 20 hours a week that they wouldn't been able to work on campus anyway. So uh, that's, that's the real challenge that many of these students face. And being having been on the international student scholar side in terms of uh, uh, being responsible for, for, for verifying that these students are in status, maintaining their status throughout their stay. Uh, when you end up seeing some of those same students who pleaded poverty uh, immediately after arriving on campus, um, and then end up seeing them in stores and restaurants that uh, working uh, illegally, what are you supposed to do? And that's. Um, that's, a, that's something that most international offices and their, their staff have to deal with because they live and work in the areas that, uh, that these students are also living. So it's a, it's a real challenge. So cutting these corners, particularly on the financial side, uh, everybody knows students want to minimize the amount that they have to spend to get their education. That's, that's natural and that's perfectly allowable, but you still have to have the money you say you have to, in order to be able to um, get your get your I-20 initially, convince a consular officer that you're worthy of that, and then also the Customs and Border Patrol person. So there's three real steps related to financials uh, that students have to overcome to get into the United States and be able to start attending college. And thankful, and are there are, are those steps always going to catch everybody uh, who might be trying to cut corners? No. It's not, and the students that were caught didn't do a good enough job, apparently, of convincing their uh, the consular the consular border patrol officer or not consular customs and border patrol officer that they were uh, their funding was legitimate. And when there, there is doubt, there is doubt. And then the, when the secondary uh, exp, 
uh, assessment was done uh, in that uh, windowless room. This is where the, the truth comes out. And when the de their devices were analyzed and found to be uh, inaccurate, uh, in or having, having messaging that reflected that their, their, their intent was not to become students, that their intent was really to, um, to work illegally and to, uh, that is not allowed. Uh, when that's found out, they were sent home. So I, I think it's uh, the, the cautionary tale piece that uh, a number of our agents that we're working with who uh, sent messages when the, after the news of Broken India, they're sending messages out on LinkedIn to their students uh, and to all students that might be following them that, hey, it's not, it's not the, don't go, don't even tr think about going until your funding is, is guaranteed, until you know you have the funds to pay for your education. And this is, this is not a unique situation to the United States. It's unique in that students are limited once they come to working on campus uh, for that first year if they're not enrolled in a curricular practical training that program that allows that. But uh, the, that's in terms of allowing them to work off campus in their field of study. But for most students uh, there uh, in other countries as well, we saw it back uh, when the Pi Live Australia had their student panel that uh, students were complaining that, hey, we should, we, should, we should be able to make a living wage. And I go, well, you're students. You're not, you're not workers necessarily. That's not your main purpose of being in country. You actually said when you first entered the country, you had to document you had the funding to pay for your studies. And now you're coming and you can't do that. Uh, so it's a similar story, not unique to the U.S., but in Australia they're having, having these issues too. Uh, that they should deserve a, to be able to work to, enough to f pay their bills. And in an ideal world, maybe that would be the case, but the rules and regulations don't allow that now, not only in, in the United States but in other countries as well, to be able to work exclusive, enough hours to be able to pay for your education. That's, that's just not the way the systems are set up in any country, really. So of, of the major destinations. So in terms of cutting corners, we don't want that. Uh, we don't want no institution wants to be admitting and enrolling students that are not able to pay their bills. Uh, obviously, there are occasions when uh, uh, tragedy strikes a family with uh, their sponsors, uh, uh, family, a father, uh, grandfather, whatever, who had been paying the bills, suddenly dies. That that happens. We that always we we have. I've, I've, I've known dozens of cases like that over the years. You have uh, situations when currencies uh, just tank and uh, economies collapse, and uh, as a result, the funding that students have to pay their bills gets, uh, gets severely compromised. Uh, you have wars that break out that affect abil families' abilities to get money out uh, to pay bills. So there's all sorts of ra very rational reasons why funding issues come up come into play after students enroll but this is this case here with these 21 Indian students is clearly a, the, the former it's the the kinds of subterfuge that goes on uh, probably more than we know in terms of being able to get through those three gatekeepers the individual institutions that verify funding to before they issue the I-20 the consular officer at the embassy or consulate that reviews before they can issue the I the visa and then the Customs Border Patrol officer that can, has the final say on whether that student can enter into the United States. Most of us on the immigration side, international student side, don't really wish that person didn't have that much power, but the reality is 
every student coming in, every, every person that comes through the across the borders, there are standards that they all must meet. And for students, there's a certain set of standards that uh, the, these Border Patrol officers um, are tasked with preventing non-legitimate actors entering the United States. Uh, or students, in this case, entering the United States. So they have a very tough job, and uh, they have work uh, some very, very odd hours. Um, they work long hours, like many of us do these days. But uh, they're not perfect people. We're not perfect people, and no one is. But they're, that's the ch those are the challenges that students must face. It's that, uh, in terms of being honest, uh, being upfront, being able to art, make your Make your case as you had done earlier with your with the visa officer and submitting your documents to uh, your university. So all of those steps, uh, by the time you get to a customs border patrol agent, you should have that process down and should be able to argue effectively that you have all the money that you say you have and here are the legitimate sources. All of that should be well documented and students should not have ch uh, issues convincing a customs border patrol if it's legit. If it's not legit, then. There are tells that you'll probably get found out. So don't cut corners, and that's in the bottom line, that's the advice. So uh, in, in, all, in all areas of life, I think, cutting corners can doesn't, rarely leads to uh, very positive outcomes and on a consistent basis. And uh, there's, there's ethical considerations in here, too, in terms of the, the student's um, willingness to subvert the rules and to... Um, and do things that they're not allowed to do. And again, this is all conjecture. Uh, there's hearsay and all these other evidence pieces that we never know the individual stories of these students. Uh, every time there's, a, and this is the time of year where there usually are maybe a series of these happening as students come into the country and are denied entry or put in secondary or uh, go through some very um, ominous hurdles, it seems like, or uh, jump through some hoops that uh, we would say, wow, I have to do that. Uh, when the reality is, yeah, they do, and when uh, that's that's uh, that's the that's on the burden on those custom and board patrol officers to get it right, and they don't always get it right. But we don't always get it right when we issue the documents in the first place, because that's part of our challenge too as institutions is we have a role to play in verifying funding, and there are a number of folks out there that have. Uh, uh, trying to crack that nut. Uh, funds verification has been one of those. Cheryl Derrick Boychuk that I've, wor I've worked with in the past on different projects. Uh, she uh, has had that company uh, now for a while and that India has been there. They're kind of proving grounds for making that uh, that work and the ways to verify funding and how long it's been in the account and all of those area, all those various issues. There are some agents that won't uh, in, in India that won't work with students unless they've verified them their funding as well. So there's even other actors that are the experts on the ground that can help uh, in this role. So um, it's a deep and messy and messy question on funding uh, for students to, to really explore in depth. Uh, but uh, I'm sure you're having similar conversations on your campus and I'm, uh, I'd really be eager to have additional conversations with you as, uh, as time permits in the, in the weeks and months to come. Now, uh, on to our second question of the day. And that is, how can the U.S. advance international student recruitment and enrollment? And this is coming, as if you hadn't guessed, uh, from ERC's recent uh, recommendations uh, to, to the federal government to uh, provide a more cohesive, unified, and connected approach towards international student enrollment in the United States and recruitment in the United States. And uh, I'm going to be sharing a couple articles with you here. One is actually the 
the ARC document itself uh, that lists the different, um, the two, two main recommendations that they're making, and then the ICIF monitor piece that uh, picks up on that. Uh, just a quick heads up, Karen Fisher in her Latitudes column uh, newsletter I also had the main story was about this initiative. And I think what's, what's important in the way ARCI has gone about this, they're, they're not trying to position themselves as the ultimate expert in the room because they see and make clear that they're trying to add value to uh, the other uh, thought leaders and, and uh, so partner associations, organizations that have already uh, been uh, have made put, put rather substantive and specific uh, recommendations to, for, toward, for, to the government for what those big steps can and should be. Uh, that and in their in their in their request or what their recommendations are, they they the, the purpose that they outline are to articulate ARC's distinctive vision for how international student enrollment to the U.S. can grow and succeed, to complement the recommendations made by other or associations and organizations, to influence the broader conversations on U.S. international education policies and the development of a national strategy, and that's a, a goal that we all share in the field. Uh, the government hasn't yet shared that vision in terms of what that looks like. Uh, they have their own major federal agencies doing their own thing, as we've talked about on the, on the roundup before. Commerce is, now has uh, international ed in, as a major component of their national export strategy. You have Department of State that is doing what they can to uh, increase uh, their increase uh, awareness of uh, and appointment slots for visas in certain key markets. Uh, you have uh, Department of Homeland Security uh, trying to present a, uh, a, a more streamlined process for international students to navigate uh, when they enter the United States and then while they're in the United States. Uh, but there's no interwoven connectedness between those strategies in terms of a lead from the top, uh, from the White House in terms of direction uh, for that international ed strategy. So this is really something that we I'm, I'm, I'm certainly supportive of ARC in, in their attempts to put, this, put these recommendations forward and to influence the broader conversation again on U.S. international ed policies. And the final purpose of these recommendations, be a primary resource for ARC's advocacy for expanding U.S. international student enrollment. So uh, in terms of what their recommendations are, uh, the preamble is uh, kind of laying the foundation of where ARC fits in the, in the scheme of landscape of international education associations and uh, thought leadership and all of that. Uh, they, in terms of their, their um, as the membership association, uh, uh, that is a standards development organization, SDO, in the United States, uh, they put forth two recommendations uh, for advancing international student recruitment and enrollment in the United States to help make the U.S. the undisputed premier destination for international students. And part of this is to, it's in response to what I, what we talk about almost weekly on the Roundup is the need for perspective, a global perspective on international education. Because we know we are not the only ones out there doing what we're doing. And we have other countries that are much more nimble uh, in terms of how they approach international education, that have educational policies, immigration policies that reflect a national strategy and reflect a willingness to uh, simplify processes and to allow for dual intent. We see um, 
so we'll, we'll touch on that in our third question on the on the day is when we get to Australia but we've seen what what a benefit Canada has received in terms of enrolling international students uh, talking some outrageous numbers for that country in the, in the next year um, so there's there's so much going on here and uh, what most of us on the ground if we're newer to our institutions and we are newer to the field we probably don't have a, a, that kind of a global perspective on what how competitive it really is uh, for uh, institutions that are trying to recruit students from overseas that we're not just competing against our competitor institutions domestically here in the United States we're competing against uh, universities in dozens of other countries that might be going after the same students we are and it's not just the UK, Canada, Australia anymore. It's China, it's France, it's Germany that are also eagerly going after the same students we're looking at. So having that perspective and I think ARC's approach here in their recommendations, and we'll go through those. Recommendation number one, promote the many and diverse U.S. educational entry points to expand access to international student mobility. And we always hear, when we hear about international education, we always think of post-secondary education, right? So uh, the reality is uh, international students come into the United States at all levels, from kindergarten through 12, K through 12 schools, secondary public and private secondary schools, community colleges, uh, English language programs, um, as well as undergraduate and graduate institutions. So it's uh, also, it goes a little bit a step further than I've seen it taken before. We also talk, see uh, short-term exchange programs, volunteer programs, work and cultural programs, online learning, um, looking at uh, au pairs and other, other visa categories that come for, that bring people to the United States that may have an interest in uh, studying uh, at some point. So, but there, there's, there are a range of options that are out there, but there's little connectivity between the two in terms of changing of status and the processes can be very cumbersome. Uh, for those that want to transition from one to another and see um, see the still the see the real real value and these these recommendations here are are meant to spark conversation frankly amongst all of us in in the field uh, they uh, they really are attempting to uh, paint the picture much more broadly than we have ever done before as a as a nation in terms of allowing the world to come to us uh, for a variety of reasons uh, at, a at a variety of levels and entry points and that can, uh, connecting the dots, allow them to connect the dots and make those transitions a much smoother process uh, that, that want to come in for more of a longer educational journey than what they initially intended. So uh, the action points that they recommend under this first, uh, first recommendation, identify and promote model practices that demonstrate the benefits of a wide variety of educational entry points train those who advise and counsel students abroad uh, about the diversity of educational entry points, promote multiple entry points to students, their families, and stakeholders so that they are aware of the robust educational choices students have. So this is also on us and the folks that we work with abroad to get the word out. Increase the attractiveness of student educational entry points by providing evidence on how the opportunities are an excellent value. And this, there's some, some of that out there for some of us, like on the university side, the economic value and all that. But there's a lot more to it, of course. Advocate for improve, improving uh, the processing of student and exchange visitor visas to make entry to and transition between educational opportunities as seamless as possible. 
and all of us, I think, would like to, like to see that. Uh, the transitions from visas categories to uh, one, one to another. Uh, other than the exchange visitors that come and have a two-year home residency requirement that requires them to go back home, uh, that's something that we really can't change. That's a legal uh, requirement of some parts of the J visa. Not everybody has that on, on a J visa. And finally, to promote and conduct training on environment enrollment management standards and best practices that support the features of international student mobility. So that's, again, a broader one uh, affecting all of us in the industry. But th there are some pieces in here that are government-focused. There are pieces here that are stakeholder-focused overseas. There are uh, many of these focuses are on us as institutions and international education providers. The second recommendation is to facilitate, facilitate connections between entry points to support international student mobility. So uh, recommendations here are really looking at the English language to university or community college role, to uh, entry, linking entry points. Those are the common ones we hear about from high school to college level. Uh, those are the ones that um, can, well, as they say, instead of entry points that are well integrated horizontally and vertically so that students can easily map out their educational pa paths, currently uh, students offer, uh, often encounter institutional and programmatic silos without clear road signs between them. So that's kind of the present situation is, is, is kind of siloed and not very clear. And the ideal would be to have integrated horizontally and vertically, vertically entry points uh, throughout the educational system for, uh, for, for students from, from overseas. So the recommended actions for this recommendation highlight models of articulation that and links entry points into educational pathways. I don't like the word pathways, no one really does, but uh, it has so many different meanings in our, in our business. To serve as examples for institutions and students to emulate. Advocate for policies and financial practices that support international students' access to funding to support their international education avenues. And support greater portability of international students' educational credentials and transfer opportunities by adopting the principles uh, that UNESCO recently put out uh, called a Convention on the Recognition of Qualifications Concerning Higher Education in the European Region. So a couple other things in there, articulation databases and assessment practices, life, uh, assessment of life skill equivalencies, non-standardized aptitude tests, scorecards, blah, blah, blah. So a lot of different things there but uh, that we could, could go into, but the reality is here, uh, these recommendations that uh, is that the U.S. as a whole, government obviously needs to be a main driver in this, that these many entry points uh, for people looking to come here for education of some kind that aren't actively promoted. We hear higher ed promoted, but we don't necessarily, and it's mostly university education, we don't necessarily hear all the ancillary pieces that can involve, can and do involve educational options at some point during, during their uh, individual's journey. So these recommendations are, are fairly deep and involve uh, not, just, um, not just the higher ed sphere, it involves English USA, Association of Boarding Schools, TABs, and other, other associations that really have our, our, our main stakeholders uh, domestically in bringing students from abroad to the U.S. So I'm really uh, happy to see this. I'm, it, it, because it's not just a USG-focused thing, I think there, there's, there's some great value we can all take from uh, fitting, uh, putting together the necessary pieces at our, on our own campuses and how we talk about international entry points 
for students um, that want want to have educational options as part of their journey to us. So uh, all of these, uh, all of this is to say that these recommendations are great, and I saw, I know know many in the international higher ed community would endorse these wholeheartedly. These um, uh, there, there's not a lot of the recommendations. There are not a lot of real action points that uh, two specific folks on the government side, which I think we we need to use as a, this as a kind of starting point for those conversations. What does that look like uh, to allow smoother transitions in, in between visa categories to promote these more broadly, to show that. Uh, the U.S. is a more welcoming destination and should be the per continue to be the premier destination. We, we're seeing our competition gain on us across the board in a lot of cases. Uh, and a country like Canada that has less than a tenth of the universities and colleges that we have in, in the United States, we're now, uh, they're now poised to have 900,000 international students in the next year, and that's vocational and, and, uh, and university level study. So and we're, we're basically getting back up to a million uh, students now in our in our database so they're gaining fast but with a tenth of the of the volume of institutions than we have uh, they're having a lot of problems up there they're talking about a cap which is part of the next question that we'll cover but uh, competition is getting more fierce for these same students and until we recognize that uh, not just on our own on our own campuses and how we develop our own strategies for international student recruitment but how we advocate to the government that hey it's a competitive playing field out there and we're not keeping up uh, that this gets to our third question how quickly can visa policy be changed we have been talking about immigration reform in this country since the 80s there's been so little done constructive things done to allow for real change to happen and it gets caught up in politics every single time um, Presidents on both sides of the aisle have had ambitious uh, immigration reform plans over the last uh, two decades, three decades even, but so little has actually gotten done. I mean, think it's, it's back since eight, 1988 or so, 86, 88, the Immigration Reform Act was, was passed, and that was the last substantive change. Uh, that We had the DREAM Act that was passed by Congress, and then that's been debated, and there's still those dreamers are still in limbo. Um, that hasn't been really identified. So... We're in a position here in the United States where we don't have uh, a really, um, there's not a collective wisdom, collective energy, and again, lacking a national policy on immigration as other countries have in Australia, in the UK, to a lesser extent in Canada. They, they say they don't have one, but they have policies that certainly allow for international education to develop uh, a policy for the country. But we're seeing uh, seeing other destinations, and we're going to talk about Australia and Canada here in, a, in our two main examples that we're going to cover here. We've talked in the past few months about what's happening in the UK. Uh, they had a new government that started uh, that had come in and uh, after Boris Johnson left, and then there was an interim P, uh, PM, but now when the Rishi Sunak, Sunak government took, took, took office, they put forth a very in lack of a better better phrase, anti-international education agenda that sought to restrict uh, international students coming to the UK. They succeeded in passing uh, with, with a concern over net migration numbers reaching record levels and the number of dependents that were coming with students, uh, particularly for one-year master's programs and then 
they were counting in the net migration numbers and that it has impacts on uh, services that the country offers, all of that. Uh, there was uh, a very, uh, not swift, it took a few months, but they were able to uh, ban uh, dependents coming from all but doctoral level programs into the UK. So uh, that is a significant shift. Uh, we've also seen uh, there be talks about uh, low quality degrees, uh, international students not being able to enroll in those. And this one has a little bit more of a, um, that one, that particular one I hasn't particularly passed, I don't think it's passed yet, but they, they're dealing with uh, well, what constitutes a low quality degree. And this, is, uh, this isn't necessarily the art majors and these kind of things, but low quality degrees from institutions that maybe are uh, just trying to get student, international student in, into, into programs that aren't really leading to jobs and are just a revenue builder for the institution, all that. So that, that's been happening in the UK. So they've had a government that come in and, and has, has been able to institute substantive change that affects international student interest in that country. Though they're up 23% for visas issued for the fall. So in the UK, we'll, we'll talk more about that in next week's edition, I'm sure. But the two examples I'm, I want to give you are, in addition to the UK one we just touched on, are in Australia and Canada. Australia is proposing two different significant changes to visa policy that uh, I've, uh, uh, I'm, I'm just amazed at how quickly it's being done. And, but it's being done in a country that values international education at all levels. It's government policy. There is a national strategy, all of that. And first of one is that banning concurrent enrollment in a crackdown on dodgy providers. So this is a loophole that had existed that allows international students to switch to cheaper providers shortly after arriving in the country in a crackdown on these dodgy providers. That, uh, that uh, ministers have warned, and it's from a Pi News article, that they may begin banning high-risk institutions from recruiting overseas. Uh, so that's, that's, uh, that's interesting. Uh, that the amount of money students need to be need to be eligible for visas is set to increase, which may push out some of these dodgy providers anyway. Uh, so that is uh, uh, this growing concern that unscrupulous educational providers are misusing the policy that had existed that allowed students to switch. Uh, normally, that's a six-month policy. Uh, the policy now uh, had normally allowed for six months. So this is sort of the equivalent of our transfer outs. Uh, in the United States. Uh, in Australia, it, the policy had been allowed that the, the students had to wait six months to change providers, but this loophole had allowed them to do so much more quickly than uh, the universities that enrolled them would have allowed. Uh, so this is, uh, that increased substantially in 2023, uh, up, up to 17,000 of these concurrent enrollments uh, compared to 10,500 in the pandemic era 19, 2019 to 2022. So that's interesting to see. This was a change that uh, uh, universities have been clamoring for for a while, but now they're closing that loophole and that will uh, prevent uh, this from becoming uh, exploited again. So that's great. Uh, what uh, Australia is also doing is they may allow, and this isn't confirmed yet, but they may allow stud students uh, to indicate their desire to migrate when they're in the visa application process. Uh, this the reality of the situation. Excuse me. The reality of the situation is that uh, many, uh, particularly coming to in to from Australia for vocational studies, 
were generally called two-step migrants. Uh, they're coming to do the quick, easy vocational degree, then, then that would uh, continue on to allow them to work uh, in Australia uh, with intent of, never, of, of not going home. So uh, this is now uh, kind of what we would want to have for F1 students uh, to have dual intent, that they could convince, they could, con uh, could stay in the United States to work uh, after they're finished with their studies, but they're, because it's a non-immigrant visa category, they can't say that as part of their uh, interview for a visa when they go to the U.S. consulate or embassy abroad. So uh, this is something that uh, international students going to Australia, if this passes, uh, would be able to declare that, uh, that they want to be two-step migrants. So very interesting, and I, I know I'm going way over today, and I guess I just had so much to say after uh, this trip and these, uh, uh, this, uh, this, this conversation on, um, on, on all three of these topics today are fairly meaty. But uh, we'll touch on two things that Canada is also doing just very quickly. Uh, the links are going to be in the, ch in the chat on uh, the social pages, but you can also go back to the newsletter from Monday to get that as well, which the links are also to that are in the chat. Canada is looking to modernize student visa program with a trusted institution framework that would designate uh, designated learning institutions. Uh, some of them would be trusted institutions that would get expedited visa processing. And if you're not, then I guess it's normal visa processing. But who doesn't want to be in that, uh, that trusted institution category? That's interesting. Probably be some heavy debate on that. And then also, Minister, uh, Housing Minister is, uh, in, is, is throwing around the possibility of a cap on international student numbers in Canada. They are at 800,000 this year, and that includes vocational and university level studies. So will that happen in Canada? That would certainly push a lot of folks off Canada as a destination. And uh, hearing from some agents on the ground, Canada's in, in India, Canada's falling off a little bit in terms of interest there. So there's a lot, a lot of movement, obviously, that happens in international ed every year, uh, with students coming and going. This is the time of year when all that's happening. But uh, and good, to, good luck to all of you who have just recently welcomed or about to uh, hundreds of thousands of international students on your campuses. All the best to to you in this most exciting time of year. Uh, we'll talk more about that in the weeks and months to come, I'm sure, about what the leading up to Open Doors in November, what travels are going to be occurring between now and then. Uh, we'll certainly be sharing what's going on with us at UNLV and where I'll be traveling in the coming weeks. But uh, we'll talk more about that next week. Uh, until then, uh, we wish you all the very best and have a great day. Cheers.